my dear listeners. This is Alan Karbelnig. I have been doing a set of podcasts about psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy. And this is number seven of my top 10 ideas in the history of psychoanalysis. This one's very straightforward. It's on the defense mechanisms. Uh, sorry, I haven't done this for a while. No excuse. I do plan to finish these 10 and then I'm going to do 100 articles that uh, we do at Rose City Center as part of our two-year training program there. Anyway, enough about that. Um, so you've obviously all heard about defense mechanisms, and they are, I uh, think the best way to think of them is to compare them to the human body's immune system. So our immune systems protect us against anything from um, uh something that like a splinter we might get into our finger to something we might get into our mouth like COVID-19 to uh, something we ingest. And the body uses a variety of mechanisms uh, in order to fight off uh, these foreign objects. Um, what's nice and clean about identifying the defense mechanisms as one of the top seven is that it really doesn't matter whether you're Freudian, Jungian, eclectic like me, uh, Kleinian, uh, self-psychology, relational psychoanalysis, intersubjective, it doesn't matter. All human beings use defense mechanisms to protect themselves. And uh, the, the main differentiation, I'm always afraid of going off on tangents, as you guys have probably seen me do, heard me do many times, is the intersubjective and relational models will be more prone to uh, consider them as in the relational field. Uh, they have um, progressed from so-called one-person psychology to two-person, which means they're really taking into account the intersubjective context, the interpersonal context of every interaction, and that would include the defense mechanisms Personally, I think one, two, and eight-person psychologies are all correct. I am an individual organism sitting here dictating into this bizarre-looking microphone right now. Um, at the same time, I exist in an interpersonal context, whether within my own mind or in friends and family and colleagues in my uh, personal life. It, to me, it's much like a force field. Um, now, I do want to quick t take a quick tangent and remind any of you that haven't heard my lectures about psychoanalytic psychotherapy or about psychoanalysis, basically where I'm coming from. I'm interested in organizing the psychoanalytic project, which is in desperate straits. I mean, the profession literally could stop existing uh, in the next 10 or 20 years because of the popularity of cognitive behavioral therapy and uh psychotropic medication. Um, there's great outcome research about psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy, but <clears throat> pardon me, not many people are familiar with them. And also, um, the so-called medical industrial complex is not really interested in it. So I like to think that I'm one of the voices contributing to create a coherent narrative for either formal psychoanalysis, like three to five times a week, or psychoanalytic psychotherapy that can be 
easily explained and understood. And toward that end, and I have complete lectures devoted to these ideas, but I'll be brief, any psychoanalyst and the word psychodynamic depth, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, those are all equivalent. Um, they basically perform three professional behaviors regardless of what their theoretical orientation is. So this is, if you see a Jungian, if you see someone doing intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy who might do a three-hour intake with you, or if you were to see a Jungian analyst twice a week, as I do currently, um, they frame the professional relationship, and that is all the stuff you know about boundaries and time, times of appointments, office settings, etc. no hitting or uh, sexual behavior, no aggressive or sexual behavior, etc., etc. That's all about the frame. <clears throat> uh, the second primary professional behavior is presence. Um, I had what I considered a kind of lousy ego psychological analysis way back in the 1990s, but I will give the fellow credit for listening very, very attentively. So presence is everything from and including empathy, attention, attunement, respect. Um, if you're more relationally oriented, it could include caring and even love, but you need to be careful with those things. But basically one thing every psychoanalytic patient should be able to count on, and let's assume a 45-minute session, which is what I tend to provide, um, is that from the time they walk in, until they walk out of your 45-minute session, you are going to be attending to them very carefully. A guy named Poland, I forget his first name right now, talked about trauma, uh, talked to use the phrase emotional witnessing, which is something Robert Stolero also uses, something like that, that, that uh, I think it should be metaphorically written on the walls of our consulting rooms in that at the very least, if you're lost in a session, you're not sure what to do, um, you're frightened by the patient, something is overwhelming your judgment, at least you can attend very, very carefully. That's just an automatic uh, given. Uh, the third thing is engagement, and those include verbal and nonverbal interventions. So the verbal ones are really pretty finite, and again, I had a separate lecture devoted to those. Those are things like interpretation, clar clarification of feelings, confrontations, then there's any number of nonverbal ones. Um, uh, one thing that was a bit confusing when I first introduced these terms is that empathy can also be a form of engagement. So let's call that focused empathy. And that would mean, let's say your patient has stumbled upon a memory of their father's dying in a car crash when they were 10 and they begin to tear up. You would slow down the tempo, maybe alter your um, posture, I definitely say something not hokey like, um, it, I have a hunch you're feeling, which, you know, is just such an overused phrase. But uh, it's hard to find kind of unique phrases, but maybe uh, I'd like to hear much more about that. Or lately I've been into, uh, why don't we hover on that for a little while? Um, uh, I would consider that focused empathy or the typical kind of sounds like, that was extremely painful and then always difficult for me being silent, um, uh, sitting back in the chair or couch, uh, really letting the person come out. 
Uh, so engagement are all of those things. And again, part of my own effort to create unification across psychoanalytic schools is this one that we all do framing, presence, and engagement, whether it's once a month, five times a week, or on a Saturday for a four-hour in-depth crisis session. So uh, another thing I'd like to review with you quickly are um, uh, what are some of the foundations of what brings people to seek help from a depth therapist? Well, they're really, they're pretty infinite because um, it can include all the DSM-5 or ICD-10 diagnoses, but it also can include relationship difficulties, problem with, int with intimacy, loss, trauma, um, breakups, uh, physical disability, serious illness. So it's a pretty broad spectrum. I have organized these into five categories. They were once four categories. Somewhere since I started these lectures, I added a fifth one, and here they come. Uh, unmet need states would be number one. So that would mean, uh, you know, your mother just wasn't around. You were a child. Your father was physically abusive toward you. Uh, you had an abusive uncle. Something in the first two to four years of your life that you needed, you were deprived of. <clears throat> the second one, which makes up a huge amount of the whole Freudian metapsychology, is the idea of internal conflicts. And that's simply like ego, ver uh, sorry, id versus superego. Boy, I'm a married man. I see an attractive woman in a coffee house. Um, my, uh, I feel the attraction. My superego attacks me for having feelings toward another woman. Uh, that could create distress. Um, trauma, of course, is the third. Uh, the fourth is developmental delays. And that would be kind of overlaps with trauma, and any of these five can overlap with one another. Um, uh, and that would be, let's say, uh, you're just psychologically immature in a major way. Or I'm seeing a fellow right now who I saw about 20 years ago who's just really kind of infantile in his business interests. He's He's always struggling to make a living, but he'll have these get rich quick schemes that are uh, like he has this idea about um, virtual backups that has been done, I don't know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So if you will, part of, part of him is delayed in a very immature uh, fashion. One of his multiple selves, if you will, is delayed. And the last one I added fairly recently are biological or neuropsychiatric difficulties. I do think 50 or 100 years from now, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia will be considered brain disorders. That doesn't mean psychodynamic psychotherapy cannot help them, because that form of therapy will help someone with diabetes or who had a leg amputated. Um, anyone with a suffering that is in need of some attention from a mental health professional or a psychoanalyst. Um, but a couple of points before we get into the defense mechanisms. Once again, these five major spreadsheet columns, if you will, they can all overlap with one another. Somebody could theoretically have all five. Um, sometimes one is really predominant, like uh, unmet need states. I'm going to close with an example of a patient with that as a primary problem. 
And another cross-theoretical model is this three-layer cake, cake idea, okay? At the top, you have whatever the distress is, anxiety, depression, obsessive ruminations, um, somatization, whatever it might be. And that, that psychophysiological reaction is occurring as a result of a defense mechanism. So consider that the middle part of the layer cake and below the defense mechanism is one or a combination of these five things. Uh, now, just to completely confuse you, which you know I wouldn't want to deliberately do, um, ever since Heinz Kohut came up with self-psychology in the 1970s, there's been a completely different way to think about the organization of the mind. The original Freudian slash Kleinian model was the so-called horizontal model where you would have, uh, if you just imagine looking out in front of you right now, uh, the horizon is the repression barrier. Below the horizon is the pre-conscious, unconscious contents. Above the horizon is consciousness and some kind of a mysterious sensor that's never been well explained anywhere um, shoves uh, unacceptable mental content, represses it down into unconsciousness. That's why I call it the repression barrier. Um, Kohut had what he called the vertical split, which is a whole long story that I talked about as another one of the top 10 in terms of the models of the unconscious. So you can go back and hear that if you want to learn more about the self-psychology model. But it basically, they call it the vertical split. So that would be, oh, I got to find a new way to explain it, but I can't think of it. Uh, you know, when my father was alive, um, let's say I had, and my two daughters were young, uh, there's a nice term of art in self-psychology called self-states. I might spend a morning uh, uh, playing with my children, helping getting them ready for school, taking them to school. It's almost like there was a split-off part of me. That's why I do think an old-held belief of mine is we're all multiple personality disorder, and the only thing that holds us together is the glue between those personality types. Uh, then I go off to work and see five or six patients doing depth therapy during the day. And then let's say on a particular day, I had a dinner with my father who, although he might have been 80 and I might have been 50, still elicited a lot of um, childlike feelings in me. So if those were extreme, if those states were extremely dissociated from one another, you would have something akin to multiple personality disorder. And the defense mechanism creating those states would be the defense mechanism of disassociation or dissociation. Uh, now that can happen uh, whether you view the unconscious as having the Freudian horizontal split or the self-psychological vertical split. And that's a good lead-in for me, uh, for one of my few unique ideas that I'm sure is not all that unique. And that is that um, a very easy, quick and dirty way to think about all of the defense mechanisms is there are ways of disassociating, almost like you could have a heading defense mechanisms and then you could put dissociation right under it. 
And here again, as much as I dislike medical analogies, one comes to my mind because of um, I happen to know, going back to like undergraduate biology, that when you get a splinter in your finger, um, uh, white blood cells rush to the spot. There are other entities, maybe microphages, I really don't remember now. And they basically form a, a, a membrane around the foreign object. So in like manner, the defense mechanisms, all of them basically split the mind. Um, in more severe pathologies, uh, like you might see in multiple personality disorder, which in my 40-year career I've only seen twice real honest-to-goodness cases, almost always there's severe sexual or physical abuse in the childhood, and the person has split into different personalities, dissociated, because the pain is so unbearable, it's as if the, the membrane around the splinter has created an entire different personality, but that's a very extreme case. So, uh, of all people, Anna Freud wrote a book uh, in 1936 called The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, and of course she was Sigmund Freud's daughter, and she is the one that really laid out, uh, kind of devoted a lot of energy to talking about the various defense mechanisms. Um, so reviewing so far, I would say there's some kind of emotional discomfort or somatic problem or trauma leading the person to see you. Um, I'm thinking of a fellow who saw me uh, three weeks after his son committed suicide. This was a couple of years ago, and oh, it was so painful being in the room with him. And actually a very normal guy, no real psychopathology, no DSM-5 or ICD pathology, but of course severely, severely upset in grief, mourning. And um, I wouldn't know how to characterize this in the defenses. I probably could if I thought more about it, but the the first three or four months of our work, he saw me about 18 months and then left uh, uh not to be back, at least not yet, um, uh, was this typical, could I have done something different that I really think is kind of a typical reaction or defense against any kind of sudden loss. It's as if um, the person cannot tolerate the randomness of horrible things. Now, in this situation, the man's son had a history of severe schizophrenia, had been hospitalized on multiple occasions, so he had thought about, um, uh, so his obsessive ruminations, if you were, were, uh, what if I would have slept in the room with him that night? Uh, what if I would have prevented him from going to the hardware store where he bought the rope that he hanged himself with? Um, what if I would have taken him to a different psychologist or psychiatrist? What if we would have had him hospitalized during that period? It took several months, totally normal stuff in my mind, for us to talk through. And of course, my quote-unquote interpretation to him after a few weeks of this was that some events in life are so overwhelming that there's no way to really imagine them. Uh, there's no way to process them. So uh, you have to defend against it by inventing retroactive scenarios that might have made a difference. Um, but that's just a side point about distress of some type. 
defense mechanism and then whatever the deeper issue is. In this case, it would be really abject trauma. In fact, isn't it interesting that I stumbled upon an example of this fellow whose uh, son committed suicide, um, who um, it was it was really one of the five. He didn't really have unmet need states or conflicts. It really was this trauma uh, that started with his son's illness several years previously and then culminated in the suicide. So let me pause and have a sip of water here and let's go back to dissociation and so one of the things Anna Freud put forth in her uh, work is that there were five so-called healthy or normal uh, defense mechanisms. Um, I always forget one of the five and I think I did right here. I'm sure of four of them and I added a fifth one but it doesn't really matter because the word healthy is tricky to use in the first place and I'd rather think of them in terms of mature or um, uh, effective. But think about what I'm about to tell you, because hopefully if you're not too disturbed yourself, you'll easily recognize these four or five defense mechanisms, but they also meet the criteria for dissociation because they do split the mind into pieces to relieve other parts of the psychophysiology from feeling certain things. So. Uh, humor is one of them. And I remember, I think it was the Challenger disaster that killed the five astronauts, one of which was the school teacher. And uh, within minutes, people are telling jokes about the event. Uh, what a great example of disassociating oneself from a tragic event. Um, but humor serves all kinds of purposes that are much more benign. Um, it's uh, funny, pun intended, to think about how much of comedy is really people just saying out loud what would make you uncomfortable to say. Um, so uh, right there, the defense against the discomfort is the use of humor, even uh, professionally. Then there's suppression. Now, suppression is distinct from repression because repression is an unconscious process. Suppression would be uh, the fellow I mentioned whose son committed suicide only a few weeks before I first met him. Um, he, I think he took about a month off work, as I recall, maybe two months. The workplace was very, very uh, supportive of him. But uh, at some point he had to return. And I would say he was depressing his grief and his sadness and his loss so that he could function at work totally cool and groovy defense mechanism. Sublimation, you've all heard of. Uh, that goes back to Sigmund Freud, and he thought that libido, the, the sexual slash love slash attachment drive, uh, when it can't be satisfied all the time, which it can't, gets converted into productive activity. That's all sublimation is. Anticipation would be uh, you have a surgery coming up. Let's say it's a, a routine non-emergency appendectomy, but it's the first surgery you've ever had. So you're going to anticipate it and think about it. And that's going to be a way that you're going to prepare your psychophysiology for uh, the procedure. The one that I just added, because I couldn't think of whatever her fifth one was, is intellectualization. And I think you all already know what that is, but that would be uh, calling the doctor and getting all the details about 
appendectomies or looking one up on YouTube so you can really learn about the technical procedures that the physician slash surgeon will be doing to you. Now, the other ones are, you can think about them on a developmental scale. I think it was my very last top 10 that I devoted to primitive defense mechanisms of projective identification and splitting. So I'm not going to elaborate on those. I would immediately add primitive dissociation, maybe even psychotic denial to that far left of the continuum list of primitive um, defense mechanisms. So a, a, an extreme form of dissociation, I had all of one patient do this who had been traumatized as an adult and also had terrible childhood trauma. She would go into these psychogenic fugue states where she had a couple of daughters living at home with her. They were in their early teens, late latency, and she would just space out, leave her house at 8 p.m., come back to her house at 3 a.m. and not remember where she'd been. So um, that doesn't mean someone is borderline personality disorder, but you're going to tend to see uh, projective identification and splitting in borderline patients pretty commonly. You may also see dissociation. My example of psychotic denial I've presented before, uh, only time it ever happened to me, and it's so memorable, a fellow was referred by his internist because his, <clears throat> pardon me, his uh, liver, liver enzymes were elevated, and he was a school teacher who was drinking three to four bottles of wine after he came back from work, and it was destroying his body. He only saw me three times, <clears throat> and then... Um, Six months later, I heard that he died. Um, uh, I was bummed to see him go, and I did everything I could to keep him in therapy, but he just wouldn't have it. But he, smart guy, I forget what subject he taught, but, you know, he'd look me right in the eye and say, but I only have one glass of wine in my hand at a time. Now, he's not lying. Um, he He was not really tracking that he would drink two to three bottles of wine a night, destroying his body, because from his subjective perception, his disassociated slash but technically psychotic denial phenomenon um, was, that's how he saw it, that's how he reported to me, <clears throat> and he had a lot of trouble identifying as a real problem. Now, there's a whole slew of defense mechanisms. I encourage you to look them up online or in psychoanalytic textbooks. You've heard of almost all of them. And these can range anywhere from the, well, from somewhere middle pathological to normal. Uh, projection, I clarified that in my lecture on projective identification. I think those two are basically the same, but you could, you could think about projection as distinct if the party you project into has no idea you're doing it. So let's say you're going to take a class at Harvard from Steven Pinker and you have all these ideas about him before you meet him. You could say that's an idealizing projection before that he's got no part of. He's not identifying with it, but you're identifying him that way. That's why a lot of people say no difference between the two. Repression you've heard of, that's thought to be unconscious. Displacement is kicking the dog. That's a very common type of uh defense mechanism, that can be conscious or unconscious. It's mostly unconscious. 
you don't realize that you're really angry at your spouse because you're pissed off at your boss. Um, you just start behaving that way. But again, it's a way to take kind of an unworkable part of your mind, the anger at your boss who's demoted you, cut your salary, and there you are being excessively critical of your spouse. Regression is an interesting one because it kind of ties in with my earlier idea about developmental delays. That's just, yeah, regressing to an earlier level of functioning. Um, uh, getting depressed and staying in bed for two days could be a regression. Um, breaking into tears could be, doesn't always necessarily mean that's a regression. Anything that suggests, uh, or let's say in response to a severe trauma, like a major automobile accident, a patient were to re revert to a lot of projective identification and splitting defenses, that would be a, uh, a regression. Denial, I just talked about. Reaction formation um, is a crack up. Um, I just thought of doing and undoing. That's kind of the OCD one. Uh, so reaction formation is that uh, you actually think is funny, something that's clearly not funny. Or, uh, it's, it's having the the logical opposite reaction to what you would expect. So these are also kind of normal daily um, defense mechanism phenomena, but they are they can present in cases of more serious pathology. Uh, doing and undoing is basically the uh, the defense mechanism of the obsessive compulsive. It comes out of one of Freud's first cases when he had a patient, I forget which guy this was, um, one of his four or five famous cases, who the, the guy moved a rock in a, a roadway because he was afraid it might cause a woman in a carriage to fall out of the carriage, but then he moved it back because he was afraid where he moved it might be a problem, and then he moved it back, doing and undoing, doing and undoing. I'm sure those of you that are OCD like me can see the same process in themselves. Uh, uh, like I'll check for three times. I tend to get anxious before I go on any kind of a trip and I'll, I'll, I'll check that I have the same thing in my suitcase three times. Um, I want to bring the lecture to an end with a moderate length uh, recent clinical example. And it also was just a really good example of um, of uh, transference, counter-transference, and an enactment. And this is a, my longest term patient ever. She's seen me a couple of breaks, but mostly on for 35 years. We're very warm with one another after all this time. Um, and I'll call her Jill, which is what I call all my female patients on the podcast or lecture. Uh, what happened was she, I talked to her once a week by Zoom because of the pandemic. <clears throat> she left me a text uh, between sessions that came out completely garbled. And I, uh, we have a good rapport, she and I. Uh, there is some borderline features to her, although one of my ways of thinking about her is after 35 years, she's about the most resolved borderline personality disorder patient I've ever seen. Um, but for her, any kind of rejection any kind of risk of interpersonal hurt or slight, she wants to just retreat. So I got this text and I texted her back, is that ancient Greek? I was joking. She then, I forget if she called me or emailed me, but 
somehow then let me know she was going to take a break and she was going to miss the rest of the sessions in that particular month, which was about three sessions, and she'd resume the next month. So uh, this happens on rare occasion with her. So I remember telling her I was hold the time, which I always do, but I would consider the appointment canceled and I just wait and see. And literally an hour before the scheduled appointment time, she asked if it was on. And what had happened was that she actually had told me something painful in that text. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the lecture where uh, you can think about defense mechanisms as being co-constructed. Because had I said instead of, uh, was that ancient Greek? Because on her end, it, the text looked totally uh, legible and sensible. I could have said, you know, I didn't get that. That came across as gibberish. So one could argue, reminds me of Lacan's idea of all communication is miscommunication. Um, I actually played a part in that disruption. But where the defense mechanism becomes relevant is Jill did her very primitive, just like splitting, I'm out of here, I'll see you later, I'm gone, goodbye. Uh, and we had a chance live to talk about it. I actually copied and pasted the gibberish, the Greek text, and sent it to her during the session so she could see what I got. I owned my part in it, and so on and so forth. So that concludes this lecture on the defense mechanisms, the defense mechanisms, number seven of the tep 10 top ideas. Thank you so much for your attention. I just hope I'm being helpful in creating kind of a uh, an understanding of what it's like to be a patient or a psychotherapist in a depth way, and also in bringing all the warring schools together. End of lecture.